Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Yo, technology, what is it all about? When you talk about the surge uh, at Starbase, which is what you were talking about that time, you got to stack this in six days or whatever, because otherwise we don't get humanity to Mars. Other people say, you know, boy, he's hard to work for. He's hard to work with, but he's got such a sense of mission. I'm going to walk through a wall for him. There's a fierce sense of urgency and he gets Starship stacked, even though there's no reason to have 200 people surging in to do it right away. And he even gets Starship launched for three and a half minutes until it explodes. He's willing to blow things up because he's fiercely urgent. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. I am your host, Danny Fortson, and we have a very special and fun show for you today. On the program is none other than Walter Isaacson, the man who has written biographies for Steve Jobs, Ben Franklin, Leonardo da Vinci, Henry Kissinger, Jennifer Doudna, and now, unless you've been living under a rock, you probably already know this, Elon Musk. His book came out this week. It is 670 pages. I have spent the entire week reading it and managed to uh, get some time with Walter to talk about the book, his time with um, Elon Musk, he spent more than two years shadowing Musk um, there, you know, f- you know, in the boardroom, in intimate family dinners on his private plane. I mean, he was just there all the time. Um, and what emerges is a really intimate picture of Musk, who, by my estimation, lives a pretty kind of unhappy existence. He's just he rarely sleeps. He's constantly on his plane going from one company to the other, one crisis to another. Often many of these crises are self-made, most notably by buying Twitter and then, you know, tweeting all kinds of very bad or stupid things and then creating controversies, etc. But it's uh, what emerges is just this picture of Musk as this kind of almost inhuman person who who has this incredible tolerance for work, for lack of sleep for taking on difficult things. He's running, depending on how you count it, at least seven companies, and they're all doing very difficult stuff. 
And Walter's great. He was there. He was on, uh, as he says, he was ringside for a couple years and really got a sense of the man, his life, both professional and personal. And what you're about to hear is our conversation about his reflections now that the book is out and kind of what he took away from his time deep inside Elon land. So that is what you're about to hear. So I will now hand over to my discussion with Walter Isaacson, biographer extraordinaire and the author of Elon Musk. Enjoy. First of all, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. I got the book on Monday. I finished it on Thursday, blazed through it. Wow. Um, Amazing. Even I haven't finished it. I got to say, it was uh, exhausting, not for the writing, but actually just kind of riding shotgun through Elon Musk's life. Well, it certainly was an exciting roller coaster ride. Um, well, look, I, I think perhaps a good place to start is you've chronicled the lives of a lot of, you know, quote unquote, great men. Um, Steve Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci, Benjamin Franklin. Henry Kissinger. When you think about all of those people and kind of what sets them apart and then compare that to Musk, what stands out in terms of, I don't know, are there similarities or are there big differences in what makes Musk Musk relative to these other guys? Well, that's a great question. And of course, we should throw in Jennifer Dowd to my latest book about the person who helped create the tool that allows us to edit our own genes. CRISPR. CRISPR, exactly right. And the reason I throw her in is that, you know, there's some people like a Jennifer Doudner who are very sympathetic, nice, empathetic, easygoing, collegial team builders. Ben Franklin was that way, too. Then there are people like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk who are hardcore, driven. They're kind of all in. And they don't actually mind running roughshod over people. <clears throat> For me, that's a little bit difficult because I tend to be a pretty much a friendly guy. You know, I, I care maybe too much about having everybody in front of me feel mm. good and like me, which is why, uh, you know, when I worked at CNN, um, maybe wasn't tough enough as a boss or was able to uh, drive enough. So when you look at uh, Elon Musk, you got to say, it's amazing some of the engineering things he's accomplished, the fact they get the rockets into orbit, nobody else can, the fact that he's recreated the internet in low Earth orbit, uh, the fact that he's helped move us to the era of electric vehicles. But he also is a rough character. I mean, he can be a really tough, sometimes uh, heartless or at least non-empathetic uh, person. And to me, that's a bit of a problem. As you go through the book, you have to say, well, do I forgive him this? And probably the things you can say, no, no, I just can't forgive that. But do you understand then how it's interwoven in this whole fabric of Musk? As Shakespeare teaches us, even the best are molded out of faults. So that's what this book is about, both the uh, light strands and the dark strands of Elon Musk. Do you think one must necessarily come with the other? Because as you say, I thought one of the the one of the the lines that stuck with me in the book is from Grimes, who is one of his. Did they actually get married? No, not yet. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, right. Um, but she's mother of three of his kids, I believe, and kind of on and off partner, et cetera. 
And, you know, he has famously said he has Asperger's and which makes it hard for him to kind of read emotional cues and kind of he lacks this empathy gene, but that it is a condition. And she said something along the lines of like, you know, if somebody is anxious or clinically depressed, they get our sympathy. But if if they have Asperger's or his condition um, or his form of it, it's kind of like, well, he's just an asshole. You know, that's a really I mean, I wrestled with that a long time. I'm glad you picked out that quote Hmm. because it is true when a person has a certain psychological condition, clinical depression, even, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar, whatever it may be. We really, really try to be sympathetic and say, "Okay, I get it. Now, with Musk, he clearly has a lot of psychological conditions, uh, most of them not diagnosed, but he'll talk about them. He's, you know, open about maybe uh, bipolar, maybe Asperger's, autism spectrum disorder, whatever you want to call it. Now, I don't know whether we should all agree with Grimes uh, that you got to cut people slack if they're mean to other people and they're a jerk if it's simply because they have Asperger's. That's a really rough one. But it is actually a true question that a person like Grimes would have about him, which is to what extent is this ingrained into him? Uh, I mean, he has a child with a more severe uh, autism spectrum disorder. But to what extent is this ingrained in us? I don't know. I'm not in fact, I don't think most medical experts know exactly the causes of all this. And to what extent does that explain some of the strengths, not just the weaknesses, the strengths somebody has to be an awesomely focused engineer? And then to what extent do we cut them some slack when they're rude to the people in front of them or even worse? I tell the stories in this book. I try to be understanding and open the way Grimes is. But frankly, I can't get myself into the headspace of, well, that's just who he is. You got to totally forgive him. Yeah. And that's what I guess that's one of the things that emerges in the book is like there are so many stories. And as you say, you tell the story through stories. I mean, cruelty or just treating people so poorly or so brutally. And, you know, like in another era, he wouldn't have he wouldn't people wouldn't be talking about Asperger's. They just say he's just an asshole. Correct. And uh, I do, as I say, weave those stories in because I think we all have to both make moral judgments and also be somewhat understanding of the whole cloth of a person. And in the end, I sort of wrestle with the idea of what if you could pull out all those dark strands? What if you said, no, 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 you're being an asshole. Stop that and quit making those impulsive, uh, non-empathetic. That's my euphemism for you know, being an asshole, perhaps. (laughs) Uh, And you pull that out. To what extent does it unravel the whole cloth? I'm not sure anybody can know the answer to that. If you, I mean, there's so many people who have different focuses and conditions. I mean, even people we all admire from Bill Gates to Jeff Bezos, you know, they can be rough on people. Steve Jobs in a totally different way. So I guess I'm just trying to say, look, I got a really up-close ringside seat. Maybe ringside is the exact word for it, because sometimes it was combative with the people around him. I'm going to tell you about him, and I think we all have to come away 
saying, how can we be more respectful of the pretty astonishing engineering and manufacturing feats? To what extent does being a disruptor, which he really has been in many industries, require being disruptive as a human? And to what extent do we say, no, 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 we're not going to sit there, you know, being totally comfortable with you being as rough on people as you sometimes are. Do you believe his earnestness? when? Because so much, one of the things, the other things that emerges again and again in the book, it's like, you know, he'll call, I, There's he sends out an email at one point at like, whatever, 1 a.m. Is it SpaceX? We're like, we've got to stack this booster on the pad for no apparent reason because this launch is two, mo- two years away. And he said, you know, get here as fast as you can by plane, by boat, by car, whatever. And hundreds of people come from across the country to take part in this exercise that seems to have no real uh, immediate purpose. But it's always like, and there's constant fire drills like this. And it's always framed in, we have to become multiplanetary. We have to save the environment. We have to save humanity these are the stakes, et cetera. Do you, do you believe he believes that genuinely? And that is the, truly the driving force of all of this kind of, you know, you, you, you use the word maniacal a lot um, in the book. Do you buy that, that that's actually what he believes in his, in his core? Another great question. I didn't buy it at first. I thought, oh man, these are the pep talk <laughs> rallies that you give to your troops or the pontifications you do on podcasts. And over and over again, it's like, no, if we don't have a fierce sense of urgency, we'll never get humans to Mars. And he'll say it sometimes in a zoned out way. And sometimes he'll say it in a deeply passionate way. And sometimes he'll almost just be saying it to himself. I've heard him murmur, we've got to get Starship up. We've got to get to Mars. And I must admit, I came to believe he actually is pretty driven by these epic senses of mission, even more so than by making money. I mean, if you're driven by making money, you're not going to build rocket ships that are going to try to get to another planet. This is not a good business model. And I think it's almost as if he's a man child, you know, still a little kid and hiding in the corner of the bookstore because he's so unpopular and, you know, awkward that he's reading the X-Band comics or reading science fiction, and he has an epic sense of mission. And that epic sense of mission is really threefold, as you say, making sure that we can get to other planets as a humanity, making sure we have sustainable energy through solar roofs and power walls and electric vehicles, and thirdly, trying to make sure artificial intelligence is safe. All that come from childhood and have been his motivating factors And when you talk about the surge uh, at Starbase, which is what you were talking about that time, you got to stack this in, you know, six days or whatever, because otherwise we don't get humanity to Mars. Other people say, you know, boy, he's hard to work for. He's hard to work with, but he's got such a sense of mission. I'm going to walk through a wall for him. Hmm. And the final point I'll make is, look, there's a fierce sense of urgency and he gets Starship stacked, even though... There's no reason to have put 200 people surging in to do it right away. And he even gets Starship launched uh, a few months ago for the first time for three and a half minutes until it explodes. 
He's willing to blow things up because he's fiercely urgent. But by the way, that's the largest movable object ever made by humans, and he's getting it to orbit. I was just finishing reading a story on totally something else, but how the U.S. military has spent billions and billions of dollars trying to create a hypersonic missile, and they can't. They're not even close. Uh, all the money's gone down the drain. They can't get it working. Well, you know, the U.S. military can't get its intelligence satellites, its big ones, into high Earth orbit. The only entity that can do so is Elon Musk's SpaceX. Likewise, NASA, ever since it grounded the space shuttle, has not been able to get astronauts into orbit and into the space station. Musk not only is able to do it, but is able to return them and then be able to make the booster land upright so he can reuse it. So yeah, that fierce urgency of stacking a rocket, you know, within a week uh, with 200 people surging in, that maniacal, fierce sense of uh, we've got to do this right away is half nuts, but it's also half the explanation of why he's able to get astronauts into orbit and NASA can. He's able to build a, a starship and we can't even build a you know hypersonic missile. And when you think about just stepping back in this kind of pantheon of kind of influential humans, you know, you've covered the gamut, as I said, from Da Vinci to the founding fathers to to Jobs and now Musk. I have believed for a while that I think he will go down as one of the most consequential, not only business people, but maybe people of our lifetime. Just when you're talking about, you know, replacing, um, you know, the mine and burn fossil fuel transport system with electric creating internet that everyone will ultimately be able to use with Starlink satellites, and the list goes on. I mean, do you think he's up there in terms of, you know, what he what he will have done by the time he's he's dead and gone? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have been writing about him, especially somebody who's, a, you know, such a roller coaster of a subject, <clears throat> if I didn't think he was very consequential. I think there are six or seven people who are in the private sector who are extraordinarily consequential in our day and age. I did Steve Jobs, who brings us into the era of friendly computers and smartphones and the app economy, and Jennifer Doudna, who helps bring us into an era where we can edit our own genes, and Musk, who, as you said, 10 years ago, all the other auto companies were getting out of them, but they were smashing their electric cars. They were like into what you just called it, mine and burn and internal combustion engines. And only one guy is doing it, and he goes bankrupt almost in 2008. He goes belly up almost in 2018. But then he becomes, you know, a car company that's more valuable than all the other car companies combined almost, or the next nine car companies combined. And so that is consequential, getting us into the era of electric vehicles. And without him, it probably would have happened but I bet you it wouldn't be happening now. Nowadays, we just, a threshold where we're doing a million electric vehicles a year. Five years from now, because of Tesla largely, if you buy an internal combustion engine car that has a gasoline, you'll be considered quaint, like you bought a house and buggy with a whip. Um, one of the other things that just struck me, I'd love to get your view on, is, you know, he has what? He has 10 children now, is that right? From four different women? Uh, yeah, uh, one of its ch children died in an early age uh, as an infant. Well, this is what I wanted to talk about. So Nevada, his first son died of sudden infant death syndrome, which just, 
is unimaginably horrible. Um, and then he often talks about 2008 when Tesla and SpaceX both almost go bankrupt. And then 2018 when Tesla is trying to roll out the Model 3, everything's going wrong. They're skirting bankruptcy again, all that stuff. He talks about those two years as kind of the most, the worst times of his life. And it just struck me when we're talking about the sense of mission, he's had an infant die and he held him in his arms while he breathed his last breath. And he's talking about his company going bankrupt as potentially going bankrupt as the most painful time in his life, which leads me to kind of just question how he is as a father and that idea that he's really concerned about humanity, but humans he finds more difficult. Yeah, well, first of all, let me um, somewhat defend it by saying, I think if you ask him what was the most worst thing that happened in your life, he'd say the death of Nevada. I mean, he hmm. cried like a wolf. He couldn't move for days. He's still stricken by it. And maybe, you know, when I write in the book that 2018 was the worst year and, you know, worst times, I think he's talking about what it was like, uh, you know, in running a business. I don't think he was comparing it to the death of Nevada. And I think if you said, what's the other worst moment? It would be uh, when his next eldest child um, rejected him. Mm -hmm. Jenna, his daughter, who had transitioned, but also uh, rejected him because he was wealthy, changed her last name, refuses to speak to him. That still causes him enormous pain. That gets to the question of how is he as a father? He is not a doting, cuddly father, but he craves the presence of his children. And, you know, you've always seen him with young ex, the three-year-old. He says, you know, he's never sadder than when his kids don't want to hang around him. And it's somewhat not typical in the sense that you never see him just cooing and cuddling and ooing and eyeing. I'll watch him let X toddle around late at night in front of a solar installation site through all the machinery. And Elon wants him there, but he's not going to be an overbearing, overprotective dad. Hmm. So there's a lot of conflicts. He loves children and having children and thinks it's important to have children. But his parents, his father was psychologically distant, which is a euphemism for being really rough on him. Hmm. His mother was wonderful, but held three jobs and certainly just let them all walk to school and take bikes all over when they were six years old. Not they like, grew up free range, as you say, which I like. Free range, unlike- uh, The opposite of helicopter parenting. Yeah, no, I think I'm more guilty of helicopter parenting. <laughs> it's always like watching out. But- that's not the way his parents were. That's not the way his grandparents were, you know, who were stunt pilots. And I think that he has this deep sense of bonding with his kids and really loves it when they're around and is depressed when they say, oh, dad, we're not going to come to this rocket launch. But when I watch him and X together, they're, they're made for each other. They don't cling to each other, but they gravitate towards each other. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, 
Download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Doug. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. There are four women who are, fa- uh, who are mothers to his 10 children. And he has often talked about I mean, again, everything is framed in civilizational um, contexts of like, whether it's AI, space travel, sustainable energy, or in this case, the falling birth rate, and how he says this is an existential threat, etc. I mean, what is driving, what is your sense of what drives him to just constantly procreate and kind of move from one woman to the next and just have more and more kids? And it's just, again, it's another very distinct part of his personality that he has all of these, he just kind of, he keeps going. And the other thing I would say before I'll stop talking is, you know, his his dad, who he has this very tortured relationship with, impregnates his stepdaughter. And there's a quote in the book where he says, you know, we're here to recreate. This are, we're here to reproduce. That is what we do. And it just kind of, it sounded like something Elon Musk would say. Um, and I'm just wondering how, what your sense of his kind of relationship is to women and this kind of... Is it driven by this procreation um, imperative or is it just, as he has said also, I just don't want to be alone? Well, he doesn't want to be alone. I said, you know, why are you so foolish in your love life? He says, I'm a fool for love. He really is attracted to storm and drama in almost all of his relationships. In fact, one of his, uh, you know, one, one of the people he's been in a relationship with said, you know, it's from childhood. He associates storm and drama with love almost. And so whether it's Justine, his first wife, or Amber Heard, his girlfriend, or almost all of them, except for Tallulah Riley, the British actress, uh, who is a very stable, is a very stable, you know, nice person, they're all rather dramatic in their relationships. I think that's somewhat separate from the fact that um, he believes that the falling birth rates are bad and that it's good for people to have children. And... I think like any of his beliefs, he kind of overdoes it at times. (laughs) Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm quite happy he has all 10 of those children, and I'm sure he is. But it's like it becomes a sense of mission, whereas most of us have kids. I think we'd love to have kids. And, uh, you know, but it's not like a mission-driven thing for us. Yeah. And that addiction to drama, again, there seems to be, and actually that, like an ingrained mania of, there's a tableau you paint in the in the book where he's just become the richest man on earth 
He's just been named Time Person of the Year. Tesla's just passed a million cars in production. He's got 30 rockets that have gone up without any issue. Like everything's working. And he he just seems incapable of happiness. He retreats to a room and plays video games while everybody else is out at this big family party at this lavish place. And he's just by himself playing video games, kind of stewing about his next thing. Yeah. I mean, he can't smell the flowers. He doesn't savor success in a... You know, every time I was with him and I tell you, things would be going smoothly, he said, I wasn't made for calm seas. I was made for a storm. And as you said, whether it be at Starbase, when things should be going smoothly, he orders up a surge or in a romantic relationship, he seems to provoke some drama or when everything's going smoothly and suddenly after the turmoil of 2018, 2019, Tesla's selling a million cars and SpaceX is landing you know, rocket after rocket, dozens of them upright and reusing them again and getting thousands of satellites into orbit. You think, okay, things are going pretty well. And he starts buying Twitter, which clearly is not being done to make money and is not being done so he can have an easier lifestyle. It's being done because he's dramatized his sense of mission. Do you think he can keep going like this? Yeah. Wow. You know, I keep thinking now seven in some ways with XAI and depending on how you count the boring company and, you know, and then there's Optimus, which is part of Tesla and Starlink part of Tesla. It's like all these are different companies in some ways. And I keep thinking, you know, hasn't he bitten off more than he can chew? I thought that when he got Twitter. And then I thought that when he started, he called me to Austin. He said, okay. I'm starting this AI company. It's like, well, how are you going to do all that? And I think he'd be, between being the, the chance of being burned out and the chance of being bored, being bored is more dangerous for him. So he's going to continue to put all his chips back on the table. I don't think, you know, he'll crash and burn, but I think some of the things he does will crash and burn, just like some of his early rockets crashed and burned. He's going to be leaving debris in his wake but uh, he's going to keep putting all the chips back on the table and trying to... It's like he's a video game addict, which he is. And even late at night, he plays a level of the game and he masters it. He can't help himself. He's got to go up to the next level of the game and play that one. He is idolized by a lot of people out here in the same way that Steve Jobs is. But you read this book and you're like, this guy's life sounds miserable. Oh, you and I would not want it. No, I mean, he's, you know, he's vomiting from stress. He's laying in a dark room on the floor when he's supposed to be getting on a Tesla conference call with investors. His, you know, very stormy personal life. It just feels like a pretty terrible existence. <laughs> well, he likes it. I mean, and I won't say he likes Does it. Does he though? Because he doesn't seem happy. It doesn't emerge as a happy. Right. And happiness is not his goal. Contentment is not his goal. Uh, enjoyment is not his goal. If you say, okay, here's something you'd do that'd be enjoyable for a long time, I'm not sure he would embrace that. I think he would say a hardcore intensity and being all in is my goal. And if he had the chance to take a two-week vacation and put his feet up, he wouldn't do it. And so is he happy? No, but is he uh, happy not being happy? That's a more difficult question. In other words, would he embrace happiness, contentment, uh, if he had enjoyment? Uh, well, he could if he wanted to, and clearly he doesn't want to. No, clearly. 
Um, what has most surprised you about the reaction to the book, whether it was the kind of outrage over the Crimea situation where he, you know, didn't turn on Starlink in Crimea, it's affecting Ukraine's ability to fight that war with Russia, whatever it may be. What has surprised you now that this is kind of out, out there in the wild? I'm not all that surprised. He's so controversial that a lot of the reaction to the book is mainly reacting to him. I mean, I, you know, read the reviews and um, it's not like, well, Walter writes good sentences or bad sentences. <laughs> it's like Elon and they'll say, I can't believe he did it in a good way or they can say it in a bad way. I can't believe he did it. You know, in the reaction has been all over the map. I mean, the tabloids here in New York, the New York Post had a two-page spread just on his relationship with Grimes and Amber Heard and the children and others. And then there are others that are dwelling on, should he have had the right to enable or disenable or not enable Starlink when Ukraine's using it for a sneak attack on Crimea? So I'm actually a little surprised at how much discussion there's been of the book. I um, try to follow it. You know, you can sort of Google news and see, you know, about the Elon Musk book. And I, I haven't really been able to keep up with it all because uh, it has caused, you know, reactions. But I guess it's better than not being noticed. <laughs> and what do you um, what is your reaction to, you know, some people have been like Walter was too soft on him. People wanted you to draw more conclusions about what he, whether he is doing is good or bad. Like, what is the balance between the personal cruelty he meets out versus the really towering achievements he has achieved for kind of broader society? This idea that you should have had of kind of gone in with some sharper elbows and be like, let me tell you what, what I see here. Yeah, I, I just did Kara Swisher's podcast. She was the main one who made that argument. And she's got a book coming out called, you know, I think Burn Book. And boy, she makes a lot of judgments. And as I said to her, where I grew up in Louisiana, I had a mentor who said, you know, two types of people come out of Louisiana, preachers and storytellers. For heaven's sake, be a storyteller. The world's got too many preachers. Mm. This book is a storytelling book, and it makes a lot of judgments, but it makes it through the stories and subtly. And as you said, you can come out of this book and you say, okay, I don't want to be this way. You get that sense through the stories. But should I have been at the end hammering it more like, I can't believe he's this good or this bad? Uh, no, uh, we talked about it earlier in this podcast or in this uh, interview, which is, all right, he could be an asshole. And yes, that is almost innate in his personality. And it may be connected to some of his abilities to do things. But do I approve of that? Well, I don't personally. But I'm going to tell you the story. And you know what? There are different readers who are going to say, we need people who actually disrupt things. Everybody's too genteel in this world. And that's why NASA can't even get an astronaut into orbit anymore. Or there are going to be people who say, as John McNeil does in the book, he had been president of Tesla. He said, you know, I think it may be the price you have to pay. You have to be an asshole to really, really get Tesla through its rough patches and push it into the era of electric vehicles. And the price you pay may have to be being really rough the way he was. But then John McNeil says, but me, I wouldn't want to be that way. And I think I'm going to leave it to the reader. I don't know that I get to preach to them. Right. Well, it is interesting in 2023 as a journalist, there does seem to be more of a 
which is less a comment about um, Elon Musk, but more broadly about just kind of the general temperature that people want less kind of fact and more opinion. Or even when there is fact, they want the opinion mixed in, which um, I'm in my mid late 40s. Like you kind of grow up and you're like, no, you like there's a story and you tell the story. But there is a greater desire. You know, I'm with you, Danny. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you totally. And I think that may be a problem today, both in media and in journalism and in our digital age, is that everybody wants a hot take at 280 characters. They want it to be, uh, they don't care about reporting the story as much as having a take on the story. And I think that's fine. But I also think there's a room for people who just say, all right, I'm going to go, I'm going to watch, I'm going to observe, I'm going to be there week after week after week getting the stories. And I'm not going to try to give you hot takes because the world has gotten a little bit too opinionated. Media has gotten a little bit too knee-jerk that I've got to lead with my opinion instead of with trying to unfold the story. And I mean, we could go, we could do a whole show on why did that happen? Is it inherent in digital technology? Is it you know, everything from talk radio to cable TV to the internet rewards intense engagement rather than narrative. But one of the good things about a book like this is you can keep in mind, I sometimes almost pin it on my wall figuratively six words, which are, let me tell you a story. And every time somebody says, what's your opinion on something? And I don't have a really brilliant, fully formed opinion that I can say in 140 characters and just yell. I say, well, let me tell you a story. And that's what this book is about. Well, to that to that very point, um, there's, a, there's a scene in the book. I think the guy's name is Lucas Hughes. Lucas. Yeah, yeah, old Lucas. Yeah. And he's a, this financial analyst at SpaceX. And he, you know, Elon Musk is in quote unquote demon mode, kind of stalking through kind of you know, barking at people and he stops at this one guy who's just a worker bee. And he basically starts firing all these questions at him saying, what's the cost of this? What's the cost of that? He's trying to get the cost down of this, some engine or whatever it may be. And the guy doesn't know and he's all flustered and he calls him an idiot and stupid and said, basically, if you don't get your act together, your resignation is accepted. And then he comes back to the next day and it's like, as if nothing has happened. And it turns out, Later that this guy, Lucas, had just lost an infant child. He'd been working around the clock. And when you talk to him after the thing that Lucas had this really, I thought, profound insight, which is, you know, Elon almost looks at all of us as tools. And sometimes tools get worn out and need to be replaced. And I just thought that was a really um, quite simple but profound kind of insight into kind of how Musk, when he began to talk about these kind of civilizational terms in which he views everything, that maybe all these people are just interchangeable tools and he just uses them till they get worn out. Yeah. And I also tell in the same chapter, I think, the story of Andy Krebs, who also gets chewed out for that night on the surge, as you talked mm. about, where you got to stack the rocket quickly. And Andy ends up getting promoted and buying into the mission. And I think you have to look into yourself, whether you're a boss or a worker or a talent or whatever it may be, and say, what is it I want? And there's some people who want an all-in, hardcore, I'm driven by a mission, and I'm going to make my mark on this world that way. And there are others who have a more balanced sense of life and family and don't think that working 
on a Friday night, Saturday night, and a Sunday night to surge a rocket ship stacking. They think, well, that's really fine, but that's not for me. Mm. And there are even people uh, at Tesla I talked to who quit because of that, but then came back and said, I had a choice between being burned out or bored, and I picked burned out because I want to be on the mission. I think one of the lessons there is that we all have to know what our priorities are and what our life goals are. And Musk kind of is focused on having people who are hardcore working around him. The other thing about the Lucas story that you know you come out with, I think, is Musk does it, but it's not personal, as he says. He hardly remembers he did it to Lucas. He didn't get physical or even scream. He just said, you don't know the price of each of these components. And if you don't get them known fast, your resignation's accepted. And he probably called him an idiot at some point. It was rough. I mean, I was like drawing my breath in. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, a Lucas or an Andy Krabs, you've got to say, I really want to be part of this people driving me crazy, but driving me to do things I didn't think I could do. And some people say, no, 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 I'm going to go work at, an, at a more nurturing environment. But I also think, and this doesn't excuse everything, that was the Raptor engine. Yeah. And that Raptor engine now costs one-tenth of what it was costing two years ago, from $2 million to $200,000. There are 33 of them on every starship. If you're wondering why Boeing hasn't gotten anybody to orbit or why Northrop Grumman or the military or NASA can't make a hypersonic missiles, it's partly because there's not the same all-in intensity. And I'm going to let the reader decide how much of that do we admire and how much of that do we say, nah. I don't think that's a good thing. I got two more questions and I'll let you go. One is about Twitter. Mm -hmm. The thing that I that struck me was that, you know, he kind of seemed to have retroactively fitted into his belief system that this was part of his mission to save humanity. I just love your thoughts on that because it seems like he just really likes Twitter and decided he needed more drama. And so I think you're right. I think he loves Twitter as a product. He needed more drama in his life. He had all he had this burning desire to do something he had done 20 years earlier, which was called X.com, which was going to be mm. a, an everything app like WeChat that's financial as well as social media. It had turned into PayPal and he had gotten ousted. So this was his chance to do it. I said to him, you had three missions in life. This isn't one of them. And he at first agrees. And then, as you say, he retroactively kind of says, well, maybe it's helping. I told you I'm naive enough to believe he actually cares about getting rocket ships to Mars at some point, and that drives him. I didn't really buy the notion, and I don't think he buys it, that it's part of his grand mission. I think it's just an impulsive thing he wanted to do. Do you think he's in danger of becoming his dad? Because it does. there's a lot of echoes, and especially his dad is kind of this – <laughs> you know, prone to conspiracy th theories, racism, all kinds of, and he's not a very nice person. And it, it does seem like he's, especially with his Twitter um, activities, it does, you know, he's retweeting some pretty nasty stuff from extremists, replatforming people, et cetera. Are you surprised at that turn that he's taken? Well, I'm not particularly surprised. And it's the theme of the book. His mother says at the very beginning, his mother had 
obviously divorced from the father, said the danger for Elon is that he becomes his father. And that's an old, as you know, great mythological theme, like in Star Wars. And does Luke Skywalker triumph over the dark side of the force and his father, Darth Vader? I don't, I think Elon is still sometimes in that struggle. Um, I don't think Elon Musk has become his father, but I do think that that those mood swings, that sometimes the zoning out and getting into a very dark mode, that's like his father. And I do find it wrong and bad. Uh, I, I guess I'm okay with him allowing back on the platform of, of Twitter X, you know, people more on the fringes, I, I guess after a while you gotta let Trump, if he wants to be back on. And even people, I think Twitter may have gone too far originally in censoring or kicking people off who question mask mandates yeah. or shutdowns at COVID. Maybe we should have had more of a discussion. But I do find it really bad when he lets some of these fringe people back on and he engages with them. Because as he said, yeah. and he's in his more rational quiet moments in the middle of the day, they said, I think we need freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach, yeah. meaning we don't amplify the people yeah, on the yeah. fringes. But then when he engages with them or reposts And them, he has 100 million followers. Yeah. Yeah. Then I think he's amplified people on the fringes and he's done it in a way that some of those dark demons like his crusade at the moment, uh, forgive that term, uh, against the Anti-Defamation League, it's really wrong. And um, I watch him go through phases of this as he did in 2018, and then phases where he's much more centrist and moderate, and uh, this roller coaster is part of the story. Lastly, have you heard from him since, you wrote, since the book? No, not directly. I, I saw him a week or so ago when I was down in Austin, Texas, but he said he hadn't read the book and it was before the book was published and I didn't send him an advanced copy. Um, I know he's posted a couple of things hmm. uh, about the excerpts of the book. Some of them good, some of them, you know, here's the main point. It, when you got access like that and you're up close with somebody, you have to remind yourself every morning and every night that it's not being written for him, that you don't care what he thinks. You've got to do it with the reader in mind. And that's hard because, as you said, uh, you and I probably have more empathy mm -hmm. for the people in front of us. So you kind of care yep. what the people at Tesla, what Elon Musk thinks. But every morning and every night, whenever I was looking at a paragraph I was putting in the story in the book or the story I was going to tell, I didn't let myself think, is he going to dislike this? I said, is this going to inform the reader? Is this going to give you a clearer view? I think if you read the book as you have, and you can be the judge, but you know, I'm free to say what you want. I think you'll say every story is in there, not because it was certainly going to please Elon, because a lot of them sure won't. Yeah. It was there because it gives a rounded picture for the reader. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Walter for taking the time. I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors about the show. And if you're so inclined after this conversation, um, pick up the book. 
it is a very detailed, fascinating insight into Musk, who is a pretty singular individual for good and for bad. Um, you, I don't think you'll come away being like, man, this guy lives a really healthy, balanced life. Um, but he has, of course, achieved some some pretty incredible things as well. And um, it just shows you all the warts, as I mentioned in our conversation, without Walter saying, you know, this guy's terrible. And let me tell you why. But the stories kind of, in my view, largely speak for themselves. But anyhow, that is it for me this week. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope you have a great weekend. If you want to look at the paper, I will be writing about this book as well in the Sunday Times. So do check that out this weekend. And we'll be back next week with another show. Thanks. Bye-bye. to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.